Winter weather is already here for many Americans, and the potential for higher heating costs is making headlines. As colder temperatures set in, electricity suppliers are working hard to winterize operations and ensure reliable and affordable power is on hand when consumers need it. But what should customers really expect? What's driving price increases? And what will the future bring? And what policies or strategies can help? Our guest this episode has key data and insights on natural gas supply and markets. This is Energy Solutions, a podcast from the Electric Power Supply Association, where we focus on the changing electric grid and ways to bring a reliable, affordable, and cleaner energy future to Americans. I'm your host, Todd Snitchler, EPSA's president and CEO. Providing reliable and affordable power is a full team effort relying on preparation and coordination among all parts of the energy production, generation, and delivery chain. Natural gas suppliers are partners with electric power providers, providing the fuel our sector needs to generate the power that keeps the lights on. So today, we're checking in with Dina Wiggins, President and CEO of the Natural Gas Supply Association. NGSA provides a winter fuel outlook every year with what consumers and policymakers need to know about natural gas supply and prices. You can find it at ngsa.org. NGSA also runs the Center for LNG, which focuses on liquefied natural gas and exporting it internationally. I also want to note that as we were editing this episode, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission issued its report on last February's winter storm, URI, which caused widespread power outages in Texas and the Midwest. Dina and I discussed URI, what happened, the not yet released FERC report, and what's needed in the future to prepare for extreme weather events in our conversation. Here's Dina. Thanks for having me, Todd. I look forward to the conversation. Of course. All right. We've kind of given the high points about NGSA, but I always like to make sure that people have an opportunity to do a little commercial for their organization. So (laughs) what would you share with us about NGSA, who your members are and what the work that you do is and, and, and how it fits into the energy spectrum? The, a couple of things that I would add is that we've been around since 1965. We're very proud of the fact that we're long-lived organization here in D.C., where sometimes things come and go. Mm-hmm. And we are very focused on downstream market issues. We're the only natural gas national trade association that focuses on downstream market issues. And what that really means for us is that we're really focused very narrowly on market issues. We're very heavily involved at FERC. We've been heavily involved in the CFTC with the implementation of Dodd-Frank. And what we are looking for is ways to support the competitive marketplace and also support the use of natural gas. And we believe that natural gas is a terrific partner to renewables as we transition to a lower carbon energy future. And as you mentioned, the Center for LNG combined with us a number of years ago. So now we have the suite of LNG issues uh, under our umbrella as well. The $64,000 question, if you're old enough to remember that TV show that everyone's asking today is, what are the primary drivers behind the increased costs of natural gas? Well, I will never admit to being old enough to understand the (laughs) phrase about the $64,000 question. So I'm just going to pass right on over that and get to the matter at hand here. Uh, NGSA for the last 21 years has done a winter outlook looking at the factors that will influence the price of natural gas as we go into the winter. Mm -hmm. Now, being a trade association of competitors, I'm sure you understand that we do not predict prices, but we look at the factors that will influence those prices. And for those who want to 
get more information about that report. It is available on our website. But just to sort of go over some of the high points, the things that we look at are the economy, weather, overall demand, winter supply, and storage as sort of the key drivers. Now, there are always some wild cards. And one of the big wild cards in the last year or so, of course, has been the pandemic. And the way that we see it this year, the economy is coming back, which is really good news, not only for the industry, but for the American public as well. Weather, our consultants tell us, is going to be maybe a little tiny bit colder than last year, but not hugely colder, so that we don't anticipate weather having a, a large impact on mm-hmm. gas pricing for the, coming into the winter. Overall demand is about the same. In some sectors, it's coming up a little bit, but overall demand for gas is about the same. Storage is um, not as robust going into this winter as it was last winter. So that will have some upward pressure on price. Winter supply of natural gas, we believe will be very strong. Of course, during the pandemic, we, like a lot of other industries, had a dip in Mm -hmm. the amount of product that we were producing. For us, that's natural gas. But that's coming back. We can talk about that, I think, a little bit more, because I think that's probably an interesting story that gets quite a bit of attention. But when you sort of put all of that together, we do come out with a conclusion that there will be some upward pressure on natural gas pricing over the winter. The good news, I I think, is on the supply picture, which looks very robust. I know there's been a lot of talk in the trade press and some of the even the, the national media about gas supply. And it, it's coming back. Uh, we, like everybody else, as I said, we it went down during during the pandemic. Sure. Producers are being, I think, justifiably cautious and not rushing to go out and and drill wells and complete mm-hmm. wells that there may not be demand for the product. So, but we believe in the market. I mean, our tagline, and you'll probably hear me say this numbers <laughs> numerous times throughout this conversation. We do, our markets matter. It's our tagline. We believe in it. So if there is a demand pull, there will be a supply response to that. And, and our producers are out there doing what they can to, to bring natural gas to market. Should customers be concerned? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, what we have seen, and this, is, this sort of gets way down in the weeds, but I think it's pretty important. Sure. Uh, there is something in the industry called ducks which are not things that quack. They are (laughs) drilled, but uncompleted wells. So from 2017 to 2020, there was an inventory of those ducks of about five to 9,000. And what this means is that those wells had been drilled, but they weren't fracked and completed and ready for the gas to flow out of them. Mm -hmm. When there is increased demand, which there is now, the easiest thing for producers to do is to complete those wells. And we have seen a decrease in in the inventory of ducks, which means that producers are going out there and completing those wells and producing from them. And it makes makes logical sense. It makes economic sense. Mm -hmm. But for the American consumer, it also makes sense in that those drilled but uncompleted wells can be completed in say one to three months. Now, what gets a lot of press attention is the drilling rigs. Right. Now to start and complete a new well, 
takes longer than the one to three months. So what we have seen and what we would expect to see based on the, the increased demand now mm-hmm. is that the drilled but uncompleted wells are being completed and then new wells will lag behind that. Again, we believe in the market. The market is responding. The market is working. That's right. And, and of course, we take supply off the end of that pipe when it eventually arrives. And so our members are sensitive to the cost implications, although I do think it's always helpful. You know, I, I say this when I'm invited to speak anywhere that people never paid more for their utility bill than they paid last month. We just don't think that way, consumers generally. So we have had historically low natural gas prices, which has really led to very low wholesale electricity prices as well. So yes, there may be some upward pressure on price, but I think it's important to keep that in perspective when you look at where prices were, call it five to 10 years ago. No one wants to pay more. Certainly we, right. we are sensitive to those concerns as well. Um, but in the end, I think we do need to keep a little longer time horizon than just the last 30 days or even 90 days and, and keep that in perspective. Because I do think that helps people kind of process through a little bit where we're going to be this winter. I agree with that. And as, as you know, I used to represent industrial and mm-hmm. users of natural gas. And this has the benefit of being consistent here. I said the same thing when I represented industrials as I do now representing producers. I think what the American public needs is prices that are high enough to encourage more production, but low enough so that American industry and others can rely on this valuable resource and compete in the marketplace. Okay. So it's it's always searching for that sweet spot. And and yes, I, I mean all the all the forward projections that I see show some upward pressure on natural gas, but no projection that I've seen is showing a return to the days of the pre-shale revolution. Right. Which, you know, for perspective, natural gas in certain parts of the country, particularly in Pennsylvania, where the Marcellus gas is being drilled, prices were as low as a dollar per MMBTU. Back pre-shale days, those prices were between 15 and $18 an MMBTU. So dramatically different prices. So a a good data point for people to keep in mind, I think. Well, and the other point that, again, this goes down into the weeds of how the the market operates, when it's a cold day in February, what gets the trade press attention and what gets the headlines Mm -hmm. is the spot price. Yeah. And the spot price is the day ahead price or the day day of price. And sometimes that price can be high. Yes, higher than if you had made arrangements to purchase that gas back in the summer. And we often talk in terms of, well, if you're going to see mom on Christmas Eve, you probably don't want to wait till the day before Christmas Eve to book your flight. Right. That those it's supply and demand and those seats on that airplane are going to be very dear the day before Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. But if you had booked your flight in May you probably would have paid a lot less. And it's somewhat similar, and I don't mean to make light of it, but it's somewhat similar it's a great to, example. to gas pricing. If you are worried about the winter pricing, there are tools available to utilities and industrials and generators and others in the market to manage that price risk. Now, yep. that's not to say the people who end up paying those super high prices in the winter. Yes, that, that's what they pay. But there are tools to manage it. And usually, and this data is very hard to come by, 
But usually our anecdotal information leads us to believe that in terms of the volumes that are mm -hmm. actually bought and sold at those extremely high prices that are on the front page of Gas Daily, right. the volumes are, are fairly minimal mm -hmm. compared to the overall water market. gas market yeah. in the United States on that particular day. As, as we look to a couple of things that have happened in the fairly recent past, the, the biggest issue that has come up and everyone has become an armchair expert or a Twitter expert about Winter Storm Uri uh, and the situation that occurred. And obviously it was a tragic situation. The loss yes. of life and damage to property is unacceptable. Everyone would agree with that. From your seat, though, can you walk us through with a, you know, a quick breakdown on the supply side of kind of Talk to us about what actually happened. Huh. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it was a it was a bad situation to say the least. It, the loss of life. Uh, hopefully, that's not something that any of us ever have to live through again. Agreed. It was, and these are not excuses. These are facts. It was incredibly cold. I don't think that's any surprise to anybody in Houston who lived through this. The average temperature in Houston at that time of year is about 56 degrees. During winter storm Uri, it was 13 degrees, and it wasn't just 13 degrees for a day or so. Right. It was it was it was sustained. Dallas was at minus two. I mean, this is almost unprecedented, if not unprecedented. Gas demand reached 148.3 BCF. That was surpassing the the previous record there in, in ERCOT. And of course, electricity demand was was at a record too. I think it was also complicated by the fact that. It was during the pandemic. Uh, we had workers who were trying to work remotely that didn't have power. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't do their jobs as easily as they could have because they didn't have power. They didn't have internet either. I had one member who I talked to him from his, uh, from his home and he was sitting in his car trying to run a gas trading desk from his car powered by the battery in his car and his cell phone. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 was, it was tough. Yeah. And because of the ice and the bad conditions, crews could not safely get back on the road. So we don't have any, I don't think we have any magic answer. It was gas did not perform as well as it otherwise would have. No other fuel did either. That's right. Um, but I do think that the people in the gas industry worked really hard to try to get power back on, to try to get gas where it needed to go. They were working around the clock. People were trying to deal with their home situations and trying to deal with their, their work situations. And gas storage played a huge role in mm -hmm. trying to meet the demand down there. If it had not been for gas storage, I think it would have been in a, in a much different and worse situation. So, yeah, that, I think there were, it, it was complicated. There was a lot going on. As you know, NERC and FERC are looking into this. We're expecting a report out pretty soon. We've seen mm -hmm. the preliminary report. We're expecting the final report. And I think there'll be a, a lot of recommendations that come from that and a lot of follow-on work by everyone in the industry. There's a lot of attention being paid to winterization of wells. Mm -hmm. Wells are winterized. Are they winterized in the Texas area? the way that they are winterized in the Rockies? No, they're not. Yep. Should they be? That's a conversation. But for all of these 
solutions or possible solutions, there are costs associated with those too. And I think we have to have a rational conversation about what what would work going forward. And our people have spent, our, our members people have spent hours and hours and hours trying to respond to all the questions from, from FERC and NERC and elsewhere that have come in. Sure, and there's no shortage. And really, um, and this shined a light on again, probably 10 years after the last time there was a substantial situation like this, the coordination between gas and electric, uh, right. the, the industries, the supply chain. Uh, if you look at where we are in 2021, it is even more closely knit together than it was in 2011. Uh, okay. And so the industries operate on a lot of similar bases, but some fairly significant differences. And I think that is probably where FERC and NERC are looking for ways to approach it. I, I laugh as we talk about this only in that um, then FERC Commissioner Phil Moeller and I, when I was at the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio, spent a lot of time trying to work with industry and parties to address this issue. Phil then left FERC and then I, of course, left the commission uh, and things seemed to be working, partly because we didn't have any weather events that focused people's attention quite as um, intently as a cold snap like URI will do. So here we are 11, 10, 11 years later, and we're having similar conversations, but I suspect given the outcomes, we may see a more formal resolution of some of those questions. So we're glad to hear that you're engaged on the issues because without the gas industry's participation, we're not gonna end up at a good place. Clearly our sector and the utilities and our municipal cousins are involved for the same reasons, because we all want the system to work and we want it to work with as near to 100% reliability as possible. Yes, and, and, and I was talking with someone else about this recently. I think what we don't want is a solution in search of a problem. Correct. I think that at least in looking at your sector of the industry, what we would like is for you to tell us what you need. I mean, if there are concrete suggestions that uh -huh. the generators have, we would be more than happy to entertain those, to look at those, if appropriate, to support those with uh, in conversations at FERC or wherever those conversations need to take place. But just uh, having regulatory bodies sort of decide what it is that we need, I don't think that's appropriate. I mean, all, a number of us, you and I mm -hmm. included, spent a lot of time a few years ago on gas electric coordination and, and tinkering around with the gas tag. I'm not sure that that at the end of the day made a lot of difference. I'd like to know the answer to that though. So sure. before we go and embark on some other big project to muck around with either a gas day or something else like that, I think we first need to look at what we did the last time and did it work? Did it help? Did it move the needle in terms of your ability, our ability to work together? If it sure. did, that's great. But right. if it didn't, why do we have to have that conversation all over again about right. this very same subject? Let's find That's something right. else to talk about that might have a better chance of, of moving the needle. Right. And, and it's, you know, in full disclosure, the gas industry and the electric industry sometimes have a little friction around these issues because of the responsibilities that each bears. And as we've noted, the models are a bit different. Yep. But I get the general sense, and I wonder if you agree that given the outcome of last winter, that the industries are better poised to find areas of mutual agreement than perhaps they have been in the past. Would you share that sentiment or do you still think there's more friction than not? You know, one of the good things that I think came out of the gas electric day conversation was the conversation. 
And I think just having those conversations at least got us in the same room at the same table. I was like, oh, so that's what you mean by that. Well, this is what we mean by that. So I think that is helpful. So yes, I think we are incentivized to try to work with you, but there is a different model. Mm -hmm. And you know, frankly, we also serve different customers That's right. than just the, the power generators. So mm-hmm. in order to try to improve a service to the generators, we also have to keep in mind that we serve utilities and, and, and industrials and our industrials, the sector that I'm most familiar with, mm-hmm. usually take on pretty much of a 24-7 basis. Mm-hmm. And generators sometimes, usually mm-hmm. don't. So if there are other services, shaped services, um, whatever you want to call them, but if there are different services that could be put into either a pipeline tariff Mm -hmm. or in the way that the gas uh, contracts are structured, I think think those are conversations that we're willing to have. That's right, because everyone again, comes back to the issue that I want to talk about next, but it's really reliability. It is simply unacceptable for the United States to have reliability challenges when the solutions are out there, we just have to find them. So since we all agree that reliability is critical, from your seat, how do we strike the right balance between that physical commodity and transportation risk that comes from the production points and where you produce the commodity that ultimately gets used at a facility like ours and then in effect converted into electrons that then travel at the speed of light as opposed to the speed of the pipeline system. Kind of, how, how do you see that fitting together or they seem to be different, but I think everyone agrees they need to be closer. And so as we look at that, are there some points that you would suggest that we use as stepping off points? We would look to you as the, as the generators, I don't really want to run your business. I don't know how to run your business, but if there are things that you are looking at and your members are looking at that you would say, well, if the gas industry could just do this, Mm -hmm. let's have a conversation about what that is. And I'm not sure what those things are, Mm -hmm. but you're a customer too. We want to be able to serve you. It's in our interest economically to do so. It's in our interest as a participant in this market to do so. And I think that we have to have the conversation about reliability and resiliency. And Mm -hmm. that's when we're in this bigger conversation about a lower carbon energy future. What frustrates me is that I think sometimes those elements are left on the table and are not talked about. So I think I think it would behoove us to continue to have those conversations and just tell us, tell us what you need. Tell, tell us what would help. What, yeah. what, what are the answers here? I, I, I hadn't intended to ask you this, but your comment just kind of brought it to mind. But it strikes me that there is an infrastructure question that also is part and parcel okay. to this. Because as we look at deep decarbonization in the future, you know, you're familiar with the study that we worked with E3 on, and it suggests that there's tens of gigawatts of new natural gas fire generation that will be required under high electrification, deep decarbonization scenarios, which suggests to me that we're going to continue to need natural gas resources for a long time to come. But you can't continue to add more offtake to an existing pipeline that's already full. 
So how do you view the infrastructure challenges that exist? Because it's clear that there are significant challenges today. I think it really boils down to education. I really don't think we as an industry on the gas side Mm -hmm. have done as good a job as we need to of trying to connect the dots. I don't think, and, and I look back to when I was just getting into this industry a number of years ago now, I didn't have any idea about the spaghetti bowl of natural gas pipelines that crisscross our country, not, not to mention the gathering lines and the local distribution lines. I didn't know that that existed. And I don't think most people do know that that exists. When you're talking about electrification, we're talking about deep decarbonization, more reliance on renewables. Well, those electrons have to get from point A to point B somehow. So we've got an infrastructure problem, I think, on the gas side. We've also got an equally, maybe even worse problem on the power transmission side. It's, I think, as hard, perhaps harder, to get a new transmission line sighted mm-hmm. than it is to get a natural gas pipeline sighted. And I don't know what we do other than try to explain it, that we've got abundant resources. We need to get them from point A to point B. We've got plenty of gas sitting in the Marcellus that we could be mm-hmm. serving in the Northeast. And we've got some data, I think it's in our winter outlook about the pipelines that have either been canceled or postponed yep. in the Northeast. We can't get the gas there. Yep. But I think that the people who oppose us are being too glib about the challenges of powering this country and maintaining our lifestyle and providing energy affordably and reliably. Mm-hmm. Now, we've got a challenge in that we're trying to get to a lower carbon energy future. And I know it's complicated, but I think we've got to keep our eye on that ball while we also keep our eye on the ball of reliability and affordability and everything else. So we, we, can't, we can't do one without the other. It's got, it, everything has to be in the mix. I think we just have to keep having the conversation and trying to explain to people that if you want to have this lifestyle, if you want to have power, if you want to have heat, if you want to have an abundant resource available to you, we've got to be able to put the infrastructure in place. You, you've kind of led right to my next question. You know, as we're recording our interview, world leaders are meeting at the COP26 event in Glasgow to discuss the future of climate policy globally. And obviously one of the biggest in, uh, issues affecting both sides of our industry, um, but yours in particular is the role that natural gas plays today and will play tomorrow. And one of the issues that we agree on, and I'm curious to hear your point of view, because you know I think it would surprise some listeners that NGSA supports an economy-wide price on carbon. Can you kind of walk us through why you've adopted that position and how you think that fits in the marketplace? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, we adopted that position before this administration took over. So right. I, I, want to, I want to make that point because we did not do this in response to the new well, not so new now, but the incoming sure. Biden administration. We took that position a year or more before the Biden administration came into power. Uh, the Republicans were in power. Uh, I had a lot of Republican friends who said, why are you doing that? We don't get that. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? This sounds crazy. But it does go back to what I said earlier. We believe in markets. We believe that markets work. We are not enamored of the idea of a regulator or a legislature 
putting their thumb on the scale and choosing a fuel or preferencing a fuel or a suite of fuels over other fuels. Now, obviously, in a carbon price, we don't get off scot-free. And I think that's why some people looked at us with a little bit of a side eye saying, hmm, that doesn't sound quite right. Why would you do something that might disadvantage you? But it's a market. And if the market price were set right, and we don't know, we don't have the market price, we don't know what that right price would be. But if it were set right, we think it would incentivize additional investment to decarbonize, to decarbonize gas and to decarbonize other fuels. Obviously, it would advantage at the early days of it, some fuels like nuclear. Mm -hmm. We get that. That's fine. We're not, again, we're not anti any other fuel. We just want the ability to compete. Mm -hmm. And we believe that a economy-wide price on carbon would do that. It would get where we need to be with a lower carbon energy future. And it would be transparent. There would be money collected. The people who've said that this would be regressive, there would be money collected that could then go to help fund some programs for communities that could be disadvantaged by something like that. Mm -hmm. And because it is transparent, I push back on some of these other programs that I think are not as transparent, that are still have a a regressive impact on lower income families, you just can't see it as easily. Right. If you hide the cost, it's not as uh, not as politically troublesome. Well, maybe say that. Right. Right. I agree. So why why not? Let's see what the cost is. Then we can figure out what to do to redistribute some of that money to address some of the inequities. Right. If we if we really believe in a lower carbon energy future. Correct. And, and that requires a sincere conversation around some of the particulars, because as you know, the details really do matter, especially yes. in this instance. And yes. So I, I think that is a, a great point that you've made. And, and, we're, the, and we're not there on the details. I mean, we're, we're admittedly at the, I was going to say 60,000 foot level. It might be at the 100,000 foot level. I mean, sure. every time I talk about a support for a price on carbon, a lot of people start asking intelligent and and well thought out follow up questions. And we just don't have the answers to those. But we would be happy to be in the dialogue to Mm -hmm. help develop those. We're disappointed that to date on the Hill, there has not been a robust conversation about a price on carbon. That just is not where the conversation is right now. Maybe it'll get there. But you don't know until you try. I'd like to circle back because I omitted a question and I didn't mean to do that. And we were talking about reliability. Um, and from your seat, I'm curious if you think what's needed to increase our focus on reliability and make sure it's prioritized. Now, as, as bad as winter storm Yuri was and as significant as the impacts were, I think one small silver lining might be that that reliability conversation, I think, is going to take on more importance going mm-hmm. forward. Uh, so we have to identify the good where you can. And that, sure. that, that is a, a small silver lining to me from that, from that event. I also think that what we're seeing happen in Europe right now is a little bit of a wake-up call Agreed. about we can't, we can't just rush to a different construct for our energy sources and our energy future without thinking about the full 
panoply of the ramifications of the choices that we're making. That's right. So those are, those are my two thoughts on that. I, I, I just think we have to, we have to keep saying it. Sometimes when we point it out, I think we're met with a lot of skepticism because Mm -hmm. I think the reaction in some parts is, well, you don't really want a lower carbon energy future because you're a fossil fuel company or represent fossil fuel companies. So you don't really want that. This is, this is just your way of pushing back and saying no, but I think we have to be thoughtful and continue to have the conversation and engage. And I think we have to engage in all levels of, of policy and just keep trying to make sure that that is part of the conversation. Yeah, I agree. And I think the evidence that it's become more uh, central to the conversation was the most recent uh, committee consideration of Commissioner Phillips uh, to take the open seat at FERC. Uh, And of course, we were thrilled to see that the nominee Phillips say that he is focused uh, first and foremost on reliability. Uh, we look forward to his arrival at FERC and him putting focus on reliability because it, it really is paramount and we can't take our eye off that ball because when we do, yeah. bad things happen and, and we just can't have that. I agree with you. I do not know him. I look forward to getting to know him and working with him. So as we come to a close, Dina, we've covered a lot of ground uh, in our conversation. Is there anything else that you want folks who listen to this podcast to either think about or know I think one of the things that's important is the conversation. You know, there is a lot said in the in the popular press and in trade press about Washington continuing to be uh, polarized and, and people sort of going to their corners and, and duking it out. And I think as trade association leaders and as our members have asked us to, we try not to do that. We try to have a conversation as you said earlier, we may not always agree on everything, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing on a, on a policy matter. I think it is wrong to refuse to talk to somebody about that disagreement. And I think that is really where the value of our trade association lies mm-hmm. in trying to figure out where's the space where we can collaborate, where can we coordinate, where can we move the needle forward on energy policy. So I look forward to continuing to work with you and your your companies on doing just that. Same here. Uh, We have a great working relationship for reasons that if anyone's listened to the entire conversation should be obvious. But Dina, we're delighted that you took some time to spend with us today and certainly appreciate the perspectives of NGSA. Uh, And for those who haven't done so, you definitely should look at the Winter Outlook. I think it's got a ton of useful information, particularly at a time where you're seeing Press reports that may suggest one thing, taking a look at the data is probably a a better way for you to get your facts. So Dina, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it, Todd. Take care. Our member companies own all types of power generation resources, including renewables, but natural gas continues to be a critical foundation for America's electric grid. You can find more information about the latest progress from competitive power suppliers and what policies can help achieve the best outcomes on our website at www.epsa.org. And as mentioned, NGSA provides resources and insights on the topics discussed in this episode at their website, www.ngsa.org. Thanks for listening to Energy Solutions. If you like this episode, please share it on social media or with your coworkers, friends, and family. 
You can also connect with us on Twitter at Epson News and on LinkedIn. And subscribe, follow, leave a rating or comment on Spotify, Pandora, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're also happy to answer your questions or take ideas for new episodes. Send them to press at epsa.org. Energy Solutions is brought to you by the Electric Power Supply Association. EPSA represents America's competitive power suppliers, which bring about 150,000 megawatts of power generation resources to customers throughout the United States. Discover the power of competition at www.epsa.org.